The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. This week we talk to two artists of different generations with new exhibitions in London. Later I'll talk to Oscar Murillo, the Colombian-born artist based in London who's just been shortlisted for the Turner Prize. He has a new show of paintings at the David's Werner Gallery. But first, Howardina Pindell. Her first ever solo exhibition in London is on now at the Victoria Miro Gallery in Mayfair, a remarkable fact given that Pindell's first solo exhibition in New York was in 1973. Pindell was born in Philadelphia in 1943 and studied at Boston University. She then took the Yale University art course, which was still influenced by the teaching style of its former course leader, the great Bauhaus artist Joseph Albers. She quickly developed a parallel career as an artist and a curator and writer. She was a curator in the Department of Prints and Illustrated Books at the Museum of Modern Art in New York for 12 years between 1967 and 1979 and then moved to the State University of New York, Stony Brook, where she is now a full professor. As an artist, in 1972, she co-founded the Air Gallery in New York alongside 19 other women artists, including Nancy Sparrow and Judith Bernstein. It was the first not-for-profit artist-run space for women artists in the U.S., In those early years, she featured in now seminal exhibitions, including Contemporary Black Artists in America in 1971 at the Whitney Museum of American Art. More recently, she featured in WAC, Art and the Feminist Revolution, in 2007 at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles and PS1 in New York. And she's currently in Soul of a Nation, the show that began at Tate Modern in 2017 and finishes its tour at the Broad in Los Angeles on the 1st of September. Pindell's show at Victoria Miro features several of the pieces for which she's best known, her 1970s abstract paintings. I went to the gallery earlier this week to speak to her. Howardina, we're in the Victoria Miro Gallery and I was stunned when I walked in to see how many works from the 1970s are here. Tell me about those works and the process that you used to create them. Well, um, basically it was a process that came by using play as an inspiration. And I don't know how I got hold of a hole puncher. In those days, there was a standard quarter inch. You couldn't get, now you can get them the size of, you know, of, of the microphone here. Um, but I just started playing with file folders. Uh, in the States, we have manila folders. And I cut them in strips. And then I started punching out holes, and then I glued the strips together, and then I put like a uh, a scrim or a curtain around so it wouldn't, you know, have a hard edge. And I have no idea what got me started. I uh, what I did was I took unprimed uh, canvas, so it's all sprayed into the fabric, and I started um, just layering. And it shows in the in the picture in the catalog where I'm just layering. I had an eight-foot ladder I could get up then. Forget it now. And I just, again, I kept repeating the process. And I had studied color theory uh, with a protege of uh, Joseph Albers. So I was very aware of how to manipulate color. Um, I had gone to Yale University School of Art and Architecture. And we took the color course, Albers course, but taught by his uh, protege. Uh, with both architects and graphic designers. So you had people, you know, from different points of view trying to understand, you know, his theory. Um, it's meant that I then had a collection of dots. And I, did, I don't throw anything out. You can tell. If anyone comes to my place, they know I don't throw anything out. <laughs> I have storage spaces all over the place. Um, and I kept the circles. And that grew into another body of work. 
But before you made the circle-based works, you were actually a figurative artist, weren't you? Yes, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, which would be the school of Aikens, uh, the Pennsylvania Academy. I didn't attend the academy. Uh, and I was in Saturday art classes for children from eight years old on because of a teacher that simply brought my parents to school and said, and this was in third grade, your daughter's very talented in art. You need to take her to museums, art galleries, and to meet artists. And they, they arranged that. Um, but my training was very, very figurative. I went to Boston University for my BFA and we kind of would tease the faculty a bit. We would call it the Brown Sauce School because they weren't interested in color. They were interested in realism. And then when I got into Yale, um, that's when I started moving away from figuration. But my teachers were angry at me at Boston because they felt that I would be changed by the exposure to abstraction, uh, which indeed is what happened. And my work just went through... Awkward periods, you know, um, while it was a two-year program. And when I graduated in 67, my work was more like figurative abstraction. I can't even explain it. And then I became aware, well, while I was a graduate student, there was a student named Nancy Marotta who was playing with the circle. And all of a sudden it was like catalyst. I became very interested in the circle, and then I started looking at Larry Poons and all the museum at Yale had Ed Reinhardt, so I liked the close-value colors, and I just started fooling around with uh, the kind of templates you might buy at an architecture store and graph paper, and I was spraying on graph paper, uh, but using crayon to draw so it would resist the water, and I think I used, I might have used some colored pencils. Um, but then that drifted into my, not using a, a ready-made template, but my punching holes, which led to the paintings. And then that led to the drawings with the holes that were punched and numbered. That's right. So you had this sort of, the circle was a sort of dominant uh, motif, but you had, in a way, two different strands. You had the negative shapes caused by the punching, and then you had the actual punched-out holes, which you used in a much more sculptural way. Yes, well, the circle, though, I think was a source of angst when I was a child because during segregation, uh, silverware, glassware, and so forth was, was marked with a red circle. And although Philadelphia was not uh, de, de jure segregation, it was de facto. Um, but my father and mother and I went to visit my mother's mother. And while she was sort of having a day with her mother and sisters, we drove into northern Kentucky uh, my grandmother was in southern Ohio, which was on the border. And my father liked root beer. So we stopped by a root beer stand, and we were given, you know, nice um, frosted, you know, cold glasses of root beer. And on the bottom was a giant red circle. And I remember saying to my father, what is that? And he said, well, because we're not white, we have to use certain uh, utensils. And so I think that stayed with me, and it's like I'm hooked and trying to make a circle a pleasant experience. And then I started looking around, you know, I became interested in astronomy. You could see, you know, the sun, the moon, whatever, how many forms in nature are actually circles. And it even got kind of humorous because as a child, my father was a mathematician and his um, degree included math and science. My mother was a historian and geography, which no longer is, is necessarily taught. And one of the first presents I got was a microscope. 
So I spent a lot of time looking at round things and weekly things swimming in Philadelphia drinking water. <laughs> so I was exposed to the circle in a different way, just as the more organic um, the circles just in motion. So, yeah. One of the things that I've, from, through reading about your work was that, that um, you experienced some sort of level of criticism because your abstraction somehow wasn't dealing with social issues. Yeah. You've given the lie to that there by talking about the root bit. Okay, there was tension within the black community, the artistic community, um, between the people that were figurative and the people that were abstract. And I remember going to the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, I met with the director, and he said, you have to go downtown and show with the white boys. And um, another person who had actually been at Yale with me was in the next class. Bill Williams had the same experience. He was told to go somewhere else. And then on top of that, I guess I had the nerve to be uh, working on the curatorial staff of the Modern, which made some people really mad because they felt, oh, I would open the doors wide. It was all I could do to get to work every day and deal with the racism within the institution. <laughs> so um, I would run into funny you know, things. I remember I was showing uh, with Just Above Midtown that was part of the Tate show, and uh, David Hammonds uh, was showing with them. It was an alternative space. And I remember Linda Bryant and her um, assistant, A.C. Hudgens, who ironically is now a trustee at The Modern, but they went to a meeting of black artists and they came back and said, oh my God, they really hate you. I think part of the problem too was I was not a New York person. And so most of the movement people were all New York-based there was an African-American women's group, uh, where we at. Uh, but there was, within the black art movement, animosity. Even this director to this day is angry at me for what he thinks is my only form of work, which is abstraction. But what changed my work was, uh, first of all, just being in a position at the modern, I could see a whole sort of melange of things going on, um, within the inside of the funding agencies and so forth. And what I found was that the um, bigger institutions and some of the alternative institutions were given line item money so that they would know every year they would be getting a certain flat amount, and maybe they'll get more than that. But any institution that was African-American or Asian, um, indigenous, whatever, they had to go through hoops every year to get through, to get funding. So that was that kind of irked me, and uh, but I could see it from the inside. So I mean, I felt it was my duty to kind of expose what was going on. Um, then the turning point for me, because that's when I left the museum on purpose. I said enough. Um, there was an exhibition at um, a alternative space called Artist Space, and in fact, the director, I think I can't remember whether she was at the Haywood. I can't remember years ago, um, and. The show was a black abstract drawings in charcoal. And one of the women who was doing, um, oh, she was observing institutions that receive money. She was African-American. And um, the postcard had gone out. And the name on the postcard was Nigger Drawings. And it turns out it was um, a white artist. Her name was Donald Newman. And... Um, the receptionist, when answering the phone, when you said, well, why does it have that title? Um, why? And the receptionist said, well, um, the jaw drawings are in charcoal, and charcoal is black, and black is nigger. 
Well, that just set off a whole pot of worms because, I mean, the group that um, protested it, we were a multiracial group, Lucy Lepard, myself, Lowry Sims, uh, Camille Billups, we even had a teacher and all. The first time we went, and David Hammonds as well, uh, in fact, he came to my loft to, to make banners, you know, for the protest, and the police shut us out. They, when we showed up, they locked the door and called the police. So then we went back again, and I remember we were sitting on the floor, and one of the director's uh, friends, I assume an artist, said, "What are you? how dare you come down here and tell us what to do? This is a white neighborhood. Now, they had been given money for expansion arts, which means to reach into communities of color, and they used it to bring artists from Scotland. So it became, uh, it, it was a mess. And the attitude at that point was, because at that point not that many white women were even showing, um, the point was, how can I explain it? If a, uh, if, if a white male artist shows and you have a negative opinion, that is considered censorship. Even if women aren't showing, people of color aren't showing, um, that's not censorship. And then what they would do is throw out the word quality. Well, their work isn't good enough. But then they don't know what the work was about because they never looked at it. So I did, got really angry. And um, one thing that came out of it was, um, let's see, the protest was in March of 79. I was in a bad car accident in 79 in October. I changed jobs. I went to uh, Stony Brook University. I've been there like 40 years. And um, I did the tape Free White in 21 because it was a reaction to the white women's movement. But finally, I was in an environment where they encouraged me, of course, to do my work and to use critical thinking. Anyway, though, so that's the kind of the story behind all of that. Let's talk about Free White in 21 a little bit more. So it's this video work, uh, and it's an ex- extremely complex piece in many ways, even though it has quite an economic form. Because on the one hand, you're referring to these horrific examples of racism that you experienced from kindergarten onwards. But then also you're setting it within a kind of feminist context in which you were experiencing resistance from uh, people within the feminist community. Yes. Can you explain uh, how you develop that work? Okay. Um, I had a head injury. So part of the work, you see me wrapping my head. That's about that. Um, I was running into resistance within the white women's movement in terms of their integrating um, and I would talk about it. And I remember one feminist came to me and said, uh, please be cooperative. You know, just don't talk about it. Uh, I remember so what she meant was don't talk don't about talk issues about of race. Of race, yeah. Then we're not interested. Then I remember I was in a, a consciousness raising group, uh, one run by one of the main feminist critics. I was the only person of color in the group. And whenever I would, and these were all actually very well-known women artists who were in the group, and whenever I bring up race, they would say, we don't want to talk about it. No, 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 that's politics. We don't want to talk about it. So I just got really upset about the fact there was no voice. Um, so I ended up putting that tape together and playing both parts. Um, and it's funny because I have done a DNA a search, so I have some very interesting DNA, so it's not... I mean, if someone is saying, oh, you're trying to pass, well, darling, I have... Scandinavian as well as Zulu. You know, I have this amazing combination of Ashkenazi, Sephardim, um, New Delhi. 
I mean, it just, it's like, oh my God. <laughs> so I don't feel so bad about playing that other part because I have, I have some Caucasian blood. Um, but some people found it offensive. In fact, um, there was a woman who introduced me to Cyrus Gallery on 57th Street. They lasted about two years. And I had a one person show there as a result of her uh, helping. Um, but in the show was Free White in 21. And uh, it got actually the award from the College Art Association for the most distinguished body of work for 1989 or 90. And um, I remember she came to me and said, you've got to take the tape out of the show. And I said, no, I won't. So she went to the dealer and said, you have got to remove that tape from the show. He wouldn't do it. And so she stopped speaking to me. I have not heard from her since. That was 1989, yeah, 90. That's you know. Yeah, so... Um, you talked about the car crash. It, it it was a real sort of pivotal moment in your life and work, wasn't it? Because it, you had memory loss, which you, in a way you recovered your memory through your work. Is that I right? recovered it through my work, but as I've gotten older and there's some meds I take as an old person, um, that my memory is lousy. I mean, it's short-term memory loss. I remember being in the crib, you know. I remember... Oh my God, walking with my father. I, you know, I remember being at church with my parents. But I, I have lost probably the last five minutes already. As we sit here speaking, we've got two very colourful later collages around us. Still, there is a presence of the circular punches, but there's also other forms. Can you tell us more about these later collages, which also well, the late collages are sort of a humorous side. It's not really humorous, but interesting side is I was going through a really bad depression. I was having a really hard time and I did the most colorful, um, joyous, kind of um, hopeful work, even though I was feeling bad. Uh, my father had died and um, uh, it almost bankrupted me. He was 98 when he died and he ran, his pension ran out. So, I mean, I was needing to, in some way, you know, support him and then when he died, I had to, you know, pay people to um, um, give away his things or go through his things. And um, I had to pay for the funeral and so forth. So it left me pretty, pretty short of cash. So I was hardly eating, you know. I mean, it was awful time, terrible time. But I produced these works when I was going through that. So the joy you see in it is like um, a disassociated from my actual real feelings, Although maybe those are my real feelings, I don't know. Um, but I, I particularly like the piece behind you, um, you know, just because it is so colorful and I have different size hole punches. Fortunately, now you can buy them as big as a pizza. Not quite, but about <laughs> that big. You can get punchers. Yeah. Um, at this moment, you've spoken actually a lot about resistance to work by artists of color and mm -hmm. how difficult it was. Um, especially in your younger days, yeah. but, but right the way through until pretty much recently. Yeah. Um, we're in a moment where, I mean, he, he, we are talking in your first UK solo show. We've had the Soul of a Nation show, which began here and is now toured across the States. Is that, do you feel entirely celebratory about that? Or do you feel, is it a bittersweet moment in the sense that there's a lot of great artists who should have been recognised sooner? I feel both. You know, um, a number of artists have passed. I'm very grateful I have longevity. 
um, because I could live through this moment. And I have this amazing dealer uh, in New York. His name is Garth Brennan, who reached out uh, to Victoria. Um, how can I explain it? It's a sweet moment, but I don't feel the elation that I might have felt 30 years ago because now I feel like I've been through the ringer and uh, it's like I'm stepping aside and watching from a distance what's happening rather than being in the moment and being all excited about it as I might have been 30 years ago. In fact, I would use the term stunned because since January I've been getting all these awards you know, the College Art Association Award for Lifetime Achievement. Uh, I'll be getting in October the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art Medal. Um, I just got an honorary doctorate in fine arts from Maryland Institute College of Art. But no, all of these things have happened. Like, all of a sudden, and the catalog itself got the um, um, George Wittenborn Award for the Best Art Book of 2018. Um, Garth and the two curators did an amazing job. They did, I hardly said a word to me. All I remember Garth would say, well, it's like a phone book. I'm like, hmm. Um, but yeah, so much has happened at once that I feel more stunned. Yeah, it's shocking to me. So this was a, a big retrospective show at MCA Chicago and in Virginia. Um, I wonder what emotions you experienced looking back over your work over that long period of time? Because I, I know that it can be double-edged in some ways, seeing a retrospective show. Well, I think I was amazed that I did that much work because there were about 140 pieces in the first venue. The second venue got a little smaller. The third venue was Brandeis Rose Art Museum. That got a little bit smaller. But each had a different character. Um, the first venue was really intense. They did a lot of research, and they had a timeline section. And then the other venues copied the timeline section, but they all did it, you know, in different in different ways. Um, I think the full show was for me the most exciting because it had some of the adversarial pieces that um, the head of the student museum might actually find good. Um, but that piece did not travel. It was a huge piece, huge. Um, I don't know. I, each place was a different experience. Like Brandeis for me felt serene. Um, the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts separated the show so it was in two different parts of the museum. So it felt more like a museum show that was chronological and informative. But it didn't have that sense of serenity at, like at the Rose. And then uh, in Chicago, it was really intense because they had different color walls, they had a lot of text. They even had a little platform with some dots piled on it. Um, and it had all the, well, many of the pieces that were, um, I hate to use the word political, but that were, uh, that were about issues such as hunger, such as uh, police brutality, and so forth. Howard, Ina, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me. Howardina Pindell is at the Victoria Miro Gallery in Mayfair, London, until the 27th of July. We'll be back talking to Oscar Murillo after this. 
The discovery of a lost work by a great artist always creates a stir, so the appearance after more than 90 years of Eric Gill's Girl with Comb in Hair at Bonham's Modern British and Irish Art Sale in London on the 12th of June is a cause for celebration. Made in 1928 as a 21st birthday present for Desmond Flower, the son of Gill's publisher, the work has never been seen in public and is known only through tantalising references in memoirs and biographies. It isn't even mentioned in Gill's own meticulously maintained ledgers of his work. As Matthew Bradbury, Bonham's head of modern British and Irish art, puts it, it's really exciting to bring this masterpiece into the public eye for the first time since its creation. The work is such a beautiful piece and a powerful example of Gill's ambition to inject new life into the female nude by rejecting naturalism. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, Oscar Murillo this week opens a big show at David's Werner in London. Murillo has had a whirlwind decade. Less than 10 years ago, he was doing cleaning work to support his art practice, but he was thrust into the public eye as collectors scramble for his paintings around 2013, prompting eye-watering auction prices for a still very young artist. Murillo was undaunted and continued to show the full breadth of his work, stretching far beyond painting into performance, film and sculpture installations, often exploring complex themes of labour, capital and migration. Murillo grew up in a small Colombian town of La Paila, but moved with his family to London when he was 11. His personal history continues to influence his work in both prominent and more subtle ways. Oscar is with me now. Oscar, I wonder if we might begin with the beginning, in a way, uh, for your journey to becoming an artist, which is this sound piece which features your father telling the story of his migration from Colombia to London. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. I think, for example, that in history you you have, I guess, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of, of of myself a little bit in relation to like personal narratives, and uh, in into the idea of going into future generations, uh, and and so my father, who you know has become a, a pillar of sorts for the family, uh, an extensive family, was an individual that that. I guess I, I have inherited his restlessness, you no, know, his his energy, and um, and and now as a as a I as an adult have have come to to appreciate that very much, um, and so he would often really in gatherings he you, you know he'll 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 talk about this leap and this kind of audacious jump, um, and we we found ourselves in Texas uh, in a. I for a residency and, and, and him because I invited him to come along with me. And Texas, we were in, in San Antonio, Texas, um, which is kind of a, 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 a place of, 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 of no man's land almost. Um, and we thought that, or well, I thought that that, would, that, that was a, a good context in which we can isolate ourselves and, and, and talk about his, his experience of of restlessness and and of course uh his his uh travels and his i mean initially an attempt to to migrate to to panama and eventually into the u.s in the 80s and that, that failed he was imprisoned for for several months in in panama by by the natives um ironically enough panama is still connected to south america but there's a very dense jungle which hasn't allowed for for infrastructure to take place and so he he as a 20 i think he must have been 
23 or something like that he he decided to 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 uh, cross this very dense it's called el darien you know this very d- dense jungle and on the other side he was captured by by the natives and and eventually taken into prison and then then the second attempt was in, indeed to come to the UK and that was in 96 um and so i i thought that that residency in texas was a good opportunity for him to 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 immortalize that that uh that story um and and it's something that i have you know we we talked about and and he wrote and then he spoke about it and and i think then i decided to to ask various people friends and and otherwise to have this story translated into into as many languages as possible and, and it's is an ongoing it's a very very silent work uh and it's ongoing because uh very much like this other project frequencies is something that that it's is beyond uh manifestation no i beyond uh, exhibition making and and it's something that is much more about in a way this idea of storytelling obviously to present the work in texas right now is to access a very charged situation relating to immigration in texas and of course to now present it in the uk where where there's a very charged debate about immigration is also important can you tell me about your how much you wanted it to connect to contemporary debates or in a way circumvent those debates to kind of answer your question on like on left field like i want to talk about venezuela for example and i think that's where in, in a way talking about venezuela it really hits home i always in, geographically speaking i always see my my birthplace has been incredibly remote in the middle of nowhere completely inaccessible but yet at the crossroads of of highways that that connect colombia from from north to south and vice versa um and since maybe now three or four years it's it, it has become a, a, an, an astonishing um reality to witness Venezuelan people uh um walk alongside be in 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 great numbers uh inside uh trucks that that um that move trade from the ports of Colombia into into the inland uh and and to see uh, in, incredible n- number of people um and so in a way what what that does it, it you know of course i have incredible solidarity and and empathy towards you know uh syria and towards uh what's happening in north africa in the context of the mediterranean and so on and so forth but i think to be at home and to go for a run i i home you know be my 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 town in 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 colombia and then to come down back to the village from the hills and just to see you know rep- repetitively numbers of of people just idly walking the streets it hits home you know because it's a it's so remote it demonstrates the the desperation of the people and here i'm not i'm not in defense of any political faction or party or so on just really purely thinking about people and their kind of desire to to change a situation that is very very complex um that is is beyond i i i idealism but i think it's 
is uh, strongly connected to capital and uh, uncertain interest of different people. Um, so I think that it makes it into a personal relationship, you know, uh, beyond, of course, as we know, uh, the perils of, of policies and, and political climates in Europe, um, which are, of course, incredibly grave too. But I think for me, from a personal point of view, I had to connect it to, to that just to, to give it some kind of personal context. Your work has accessed this subject in all sorts of different ways. And because your work is so multifarious, you can access it in different ways. Can you say something about how one turns thoughts into an artistic language and a, and a disparate artistic language? It's very difficult. I mean, I think, I think for example, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle because I, I think for me, at the core of it, it's primarily has to be underlined because it's, it's much more profoundly about a, a, a general feeling of injustice, uh, injustice, period. And, and, uh, and, and therefore, it, it is a visceral feeling and, and that, that visceral feeling gets, it gets formalized, it gets manifested into a physical gesture, into, into physical, uh, uh, on, on, ongoing gesture, almost to get rid of that, of that uh, physical feeling of injustice. And, and then I, I think I burden, you know, the formality of painting with, with, my, with my physical feeling uh, of, of, of injustice. And so before it, it, um, it gets kind of uh, uh, anchored or gets kind of uh, hijacked or, or co-opted by any, by any particular uh, situation, symbolically political situation, uh, it's much more about a core um, physical feeling of injustice that, that it, in its nature, it's, it's, it's visceral. Um, and, you, you know, of course, you know, immigration, it's, it could be one simply because I came to this country at a very specific time, uh, inequality uh, because of, of, you know, personal experience, you know, back in Latin America and I guess also within a British context. Um, you know, you can talk about all sorts, uh, strata, uh, hierarchies, and and race is a very specific one that I struggle with because I don't, I don't like to instrumentalize uh, uh, myself, and and I hate notions of individuals playing this idea of, of victimhood. The show in Kettle's Yard in Cambridge is is called Violent Amnesia, and at the heart of it is this painting, which relates to the the um, the hanging uh, paintings that you showed in Venice uh, two Venices ago. But it has a lot more imagery in it, and I'm interested in your this sort of balance between abstraction and and identifiable imagery in your work, and that push and pull. Can you say something about the kind of imagery you're using, and and how much of a negotiation is there between a kind of uh, raw emotion and expression, and then on the one hand, and then a kind of clearly identifiable imagery? Yeah, I think I think there are uh, iconography. Becomes becomes a, a marker, becomes an an, an anchor. Um, I think, for example, like every time I hear the word abstraction, it, it, it like it jars me <laughs> because I um, I guess I always think about uh, the, the abstraction in the context of painting, 
obstructing the contents of uh, you know, modern, particularly American modernism, mm-hmm. uh, and contemporary too. I, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to it. I think, for example, the the, the work, uh, violent amnesia, that particular work, uh, refers to um, my desire to demonstrate a a, a time lapse, uh, which it refers also uh, at once to the title of the of both the show and the work. Um, this idea of time and memory, and very often thinking about my work as a kind of membrane. You know, these canvases, recording time, recording uh, uh, collision of, of, of marks. And the iconog- iconography serves uh, as a device to point towards uh, almost storytelling. And therefore, it, in a way, I feel that at that point, they... They do not subscribe to to uh, to certain kind of canonical descriptions of of, of, of certain uh, formalities of art making. I at once do not shy away from them, but but I feel the freedom to to do as I please in in terms of acting as a, as it is necessary for the for the practice. So tell me about the kind of imagery that features in these works. So for instance. Uh, there are there are birds in that particular work in violent amnesia, and there are but there are also um, there, there are sort of land masses. There is a, there is a, a map of the world, and of course these bring to mind all sorts of sort of um, art historical associations. I mean, we have a show of Frank Bowling's work in London right now, and uh, and and I suppose if you're using a map of the world on a painting, does Frank Bowling immediately come into your mind? Yeah, well, that's I was I was I was in a symposium about his work yesterday. Um, you know, I I met Frank, I think almost now twelve years ago. I, I I saw him at a show he did at this very tiny space called uh, Rollo Contemporary. I'm not sure if that space still exists. And the only reason why I recognized him, he came to the gallery. It was because he um, he had a he you know there was a picture of him, and uh, and then when he walked into the gallery, I was oh my god, that's Frank Bolin. <laughs> So we we spoke briefly. I think perhaps Frank Bowling, but I think I want to go a, li- a little bit even further back to to someone like uh, Joaquim uh, Torres Garcia, you know, who's a, who's a, who's a modernist, who who's an artist from Uruguay, who has in him uh, Spanish roots, who 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 lived in Paris, uh, who was also incredibly acquainted to New York. Um, so, like Frank too, there, there is there is those kind of uh, journeys of uh, uh, you know making it out of that that incredibly uh, isolated place, um, and and there is this uh, incredible drawing that for me has been a source of inspiration, the inverted map of South America, and um, and and to me that in 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 a way says a lot, you no, know? um, and so. In in my experience, rather than to to single it out to let's say South America uh, as an individual continent, um, I want I want to think about the world broadly speaking, and to change the antagonism a little bit. That is not a, a south to north kind of throwing stones, no, um, but but rather to to see it as a, as a horizontal line. So, so, uh, and I and I think this is where flying and airplanes are kind of important in this. This idea of of 
scanning the land, you know, moving horizontally along and 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 you know and being able to to have access uh if we see the for example i i make reference to the equator line uh which is a geographical uh uh marker um and with we think you know if 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 you can imagine the world just spinning and you can you can single out the equator line which which cuts the world in half and then as as the world is spinning it it just consist, con- consistently touches through you know south america you know asia and africa and then and then as as you you can highlight that line you can move uh, up or down i.e. north or south at whatever frequency you want really sharply or like or like in in much more uh you know delicate frequencies um i.e. there therefore you can have access and you can to the entire world and you can you can uh communicate and you can relate in in a in a in a form of solidarity and and not in this kind of aggressive didactic binary situation um and so yes Joaquin Garcia Torres uh from bowling both artists from from South America, you know, one from the Commonwealth, or referring to, you know, British colonies, uh, the other, a a a much more an artist of, you, you know, connected to, to let's say white heritage, but still kind of with this idea of of, of Africa or South America, but I think no, let's let's have solidarity. Let's let's think about the world. Let's think about Asia. Let's think about the Middle East, um, and 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 so on, and um, and think broadly that the the problem here is one of uh, inequality, injustice that could be found anywhere. You know. At that symposium about Frank Bowling, you spoke about how you felt the show didn't uh, investigate Frank's background as deeply as you had hoped. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think I think the the um, the complications of that show are, are, are deeper. I think, for example, it's tough, no, because because art as a cultural production cannot be uh, quantified. But um, but I think institutions uh, do have over the course of time have been a, have been good a, a good judge, good at applying law in recognizing merit, in recognizing. Uh, the endeavor of an artist disregarding the taste almost you know whether one likes or dislikes from Bowling's work it is no here or there um, I think my my visceral dissatisfaction is at the at the at the, at the clear in, uh, injustice in um, not giving this artist who who has been making work I mean, to to think of sixty years. I had an interview uh, several months ago where where I said that, you know, I think about my career and and I've been been actively making work for almost ten years, um, and and then it makes me think about David Hockney, you know, who's who's eighty five, and and has this stellar career, uh, and and he's an artist who's been celebrated throughout the world, uh, rightly so, an incredible career incredible practice um and and then on the on the same light with with tremendous amount of struggle 
I think of from bowling. Um, and and here is an institution like like the Tate Britain, uh, um, who it in itself, uh, you know, the name, you know, Tate and its history uh, to oppression and history that that symbolizes colonial role, uh, oppression, imperialism. You know, it's not even able to give these artists, simply through merit, a much more profound uh, a platform in which an audience can uh, can come and and witness an artist who's 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 had a a, a tremendous endeavor and promote his work in in a in in in, uh, in incredible celebration, uh, both in the exhibition making, and here I'm not. I'm not having a go at any singular individual, uh, no curator, um, but but the structural system, and uh, more more profoundly, at uh, the lack of uh, discourse and uh, uh, and depth around his work. And I'm able to 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 point out to that because of the the tremendous job that. The late Oakley and Wenzel did in 2017 in 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 in, in effectively uh, bringing France's work to the surface and and giving us uh, or, or gifting us his his uh, his practice to to us all and and I dare say that if it wasn't for that show at House the Kunz, I don't think that hate would be giving Frank the the mediocre exhibition that they're doing right now. Yeah, I, I I say these things completely unfiltered, you no, know, because I think the 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 things that are that are, this is not about like a, a self congratulatory moment. Um, I think the artist deserves to be to be recognized. I think the artist deserves to be to 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 be given uh, a, a broader platform. I think that um, the institution is u- using. Uh, tokenism and instrumentalizing uh, the the moment to highlight these artists, but also at the same time incredibly failing at it. Let's talk about your show at David's Werner. It's it's dominated by paintings, and in particular three different strands of painting. Can you tell me more about those different strands? I think this is this is my first painting show. Um, <laughs> I think, which is ironic, because I I think even when I was at school and and when I was making painting, I I, I saw painting as it's very imp- important to to point out that I love painting, and I love painting as a as an indulgent individual process, and it's almost something that that doesn't need to be shown, and and I can talk to you about history, I can talk to you about modernism, the Renaissance. Uh, and then you know we can we can have a kind of Western analysis of painting, but I have reserved that for myself. But then also at the same time, I recognize painting as a as a tool of conversation at certain structural social levels. And I can say this ten years on, and ten years of practice in which it ranges from from like. Having doing speeches at, at uh, events in which then you you really have a go and that becomes the work, or you 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 travel somewhere and then you you make a gesture and that becomes the work. To to large scale installations, to uh, video. So there's there's a broad of of engagement, 
And I think uh, even though I, 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 I engage in painting profoundly, I've re- resisted painting because I, 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 I wanted to, to get to a certain kind of echelon and to say, okay, well, how can painting exist here now? Um, and I think this is the show manifestation at Davis Werner that through, through I think, bold, uh, audacious, the download of energy, uh, antagonism, anger, gesture, movement, color, uh, texture, it it is able to through 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 one through one um, vessel which which is that of painting aims to to engage with an audience in a very specific place and space um and then that becomes incredibly difficult because you're you don't have the diversity of of instruments um when you say instruments you mean different types of work yeah exactly mediums you know like um even though i think for this show that there, there, there will be a, a very a very strong display which I couldn't help myself, but it's a very strong display of of uh, installation and and video and performance. I think these are things that are just that are just so uh, interconnected to to my own soul that I couldn't let go, or maybe I'm not ready to let go, and therefore they have to coexist. But but I think in, it is true indeed that there are these different strands of paintings. Um, I think that when I when I was telling you about the violent amnesia work that it's Aketo's yard. It it is this build up, you know, this build up of of memory, of time, of of mark making, of gesture. And then you you compose this this tapestries almost. Um and in, in those tapestries they have information, they have iconography. And these this this particular group of paintings called news, what they do in they they're they're getting rid of they're kind of in a way playing with that you know kind of playing with with using gesture and mark making they're kind of uh you know playing with with the information that that is already there so information or the information that's there becomes an anchor they become signifiers to to be free with mark making uh and then to simply employ uh aesthetics uh you know form color texture um and manifestation it's it's these large scale paintings um that is a m- movement sideways to to these catalyst works which are about you know automatism automatism mark making to to marry these two or, or several i think in in most cases two or th- three or four um energies together and then to to fill three to feel free with with gesture and to use words and and characters as signifiers no yeah to uh, to afford freedom it seems to me significant that you've you've now been shortlisted for the Turner prize this year in a year when your work has had great prominence in in its very many different manifestations so on the one hand you have the kettle's yard show which is a very diverse show but then also the Berlin biennale representation which was clearly like a really quite tough work and it's sculptural work so in a sense this feels like at last a, a kind of more measured assessment of your work would you do, is that how you feel 
Yeah, the, the Toronto Price is, is a complicated situation. I, I am obviously incredibly honored initially by the jury who took uh, time uh, looking at my work and, and all these different kind of perspectives and to warrant it, uh, to grant it, it being to be part of this this selection of, of four incredible artists, uh, three incredible artists of whom I am a uh, fan of all, you know, Taishani, Helen Kamok, uh, Lawrence Abu Hamza. And I think that already is a, a price. I, I, I actually have, have zero care beyond now doing a brilliant show at Turner Contemporary. I think that, to me, that's really revealing the nomination and, and getting to do a group show uh, among these, these three artists. That really is the, the highlight of this exercise. Okay, well, very good luck with it and thank you so much for talking to us today Ben it's always a pleasure Oscar Murillo Manifestation is at the David's Werner Gallery in London from 8th of June until the 26th of July. His show at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge continues until the 23rd of June and the Turner Prize exhibition opens at Turner Contemporary in Margate on the 28th of September and that's all for this week. You can read more about these and other stories online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe to our daily newsletter for all the latest news. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so, and if you're enjoying it, please give us a rating or review. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mihauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Howardina and Oscar, and thank you for listening. Next week is an Art Basel special, in which, among other things, we talk to the artist William Kentridge. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.